The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Ren Bozuski. And I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. So, Virginia, today we're talking about one of my favorite topics. Oh. That I am very good at, which is (laughs) talking. (laughs) We do love talking, or just otherwise communicating. It doesn't have to be talking. It does not have to be talking, you're right. Well, effective communication, really. And I'd like to think I communicate effectively, but I'm guessing that I know a lot less about this than I should, which is why we're gonna have Zachary DeVore uh, joining us today. Yes, staff attorney extraordinaire, uh, Zach DeVore. Um, He's gonna be talking to us about effective communication specifically in medical settings, which is- Something people don't think about a lot, but it's a really important topic, and we hope you find it as interesting as we do. Yeah, and if you don't even know what that is, well, that's why we're having an episode about it. So, before we jump in, let's check out Disability in the News. Hi, my name is Valerie. I am the Community Relations Specialist at DLCB. Amazon is soon to release a new show based on the experiences of three young adults with autism. The show is created by Jason Cadams, the director of the show Parenthood. The show will have three 20-something roommates all on the autism spectrum attempting to, as the director put it, to get a job, keep a job, make friends, fall in love, and navigate a world that eludes them. The main characters will be played by three actors who all are on the autism spectrum. There is not yet a title or release date, but keep checking on Amazon to learn about this upcoming series. All right, it is time to get into it again. Thank you, Zach, for joining us. We appreciate you being on our podcast today. You're welcome. You know, today we're talking about something that I think affects a lot more people than they realize. Can you tell us in general what is effective communications? Certainly. With effective communication, it brought down to a fundamental level. It's the ability to be able to communicate in a way that they can be understood and it's a way for them to be able to receive communication that is provided to them. And it's also the way, and it also applies to written material, which is the ability to write and receive material in a format they can understand. Example would, for example, be a person who is blind who reads Braille getting publications written in Braille. So it's it seems like this is a pretty straightforward concept, but why is, for instance, effective communication in medical offices important? 
I am uh, glad you asked that because that is, in fact, a very important issue for uh, people with uh, communication disabilities, such as uh, people who are deaf or uh, people who are hard of hearing. Because really, you know, the first reason is it assures better health, quality of care and health outcomes. If you can't communicate with your doctor, you probably are not getting very good care. Then it assures that the patients are going to be able to, to give accurate diagnosis information to the doctor. And it's going to be able to understand and understand the information they're given about treatment. It also means that outside, when they receive information for care, for example, how to take a medication, they're going to be able to understand how to do that so they can properly receive care. It also promotes efficiency because if you have communication, if you're struggling to communicate, the appointments are going to last a long time and they're going to be difficult for everyone involved. And it also makes medical offices more inviting to persons with disabilities. Unfortunately, if people are not, if people feel like they aren't going to be understood, they aren't going to want to go and receive critical medical care. And finally, and it seems odd to include this as last, but I think in the medical context, this really is the least, least important reason is it's the law. And the fact is that even if it wasn't a law, it would still be the right thing to do for doctors who want to provide proper care. That's a lot of really good reasons why we need effective communication. I think it's definitely one of those things where we just assume that this is happening for people with disabilities and it's clearly not. But regarding obviously the very important point that it's the law, what law would that be? The law is the Americans with Disabilities Act. The majority of medical offices are going to be covered as a place of public accommodation under Title III at the Americans with Disabilities Act, which uh, is the same law which protects the rights, for example, to have a right to have a ramp to get into a store. And now there will be a few healthcare providers, particularly public house, hospitals and providers such as community service boards in Virginia or operated by state and local governments. And those governments and those government operated facilities, you know, they are going to be operate they're going to, need to be covered by Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Do Title II and Title III of the ADA have the same protections for effective communication? They for the most part they're fairly similar, but there is actually one very important difference is a state and local government is required to give primary consideration to the individual's preference for accommodation. And that means they can only deny that accommodation if it is within one of the exceptions to the ADA, which we will talk about later. The second, now the private medical office, they are not required to give primary consideration to the individual's preference. They instead are required to they were instead encouraged to give consideration. The ADA says they should give consideration for the individual's preferred choice, but they are giving a ground to, to substitute a different accommodation if it would provide the effective communication. And I know those, you know, as a not lawyer, I know mm -hmm. those words like should and must are really important mm -hmm. when interpreting the law. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that a person doesn't really have the right to 
auxiliary aides and the service of their choice in a medical office. That, that, that is correct. The covered entity is allowed to select any reasonable accommodation that provides effective communication. However, if you're a person with a disability who needs auxiliary aid and service for communication, you should always inform the medical office of your preferred accommodation. So what factors go into that determination about whether the accommodation somebody's asking for is actually reasonable? There are uh, several factors of which the first one is how much does the accommodation cost? Mm. Because under the ADA, and the second one is whether the accommodation is, is readily achievable. And, and that with readily achievable, you have to uh, look, for example, if someone wants something which is just impossible to achieve, it's not going to be considered a reasonable accommodation. If I make uh, with the cost issue, it's important to note that they look at the entire resources of of the provider and not mm -hmm. the cost for the appointment. Because if you just looked at the original at at the individual appointment costs, it would it would never ever be reasonable because to provide uh, certain accommodations, but and what what that translates in reality is the larger an entity, the more the, the the more expensive accommodations are going to be reasonable if they have more resources. And the third factor is whether the accommodation would alter the nature of the service, and. What that would mean is they change so you're getting a service completely different than uh, someone else without a disability. And the fourth factor, and this is, in a way it sounds circular, but this is still very important, is whether the accommodation is necessary for the person to be able to communicate effectively. And the fifth factor is related, which is whether the proposed accommodation actually provides effective communication. And an example where of that would be if you have someone who does not speak sign language, it would not be reasonable for them to provide, to request a American Sign Language interpreter, because if you can't understand it, it's not reasonable. <laughs> right. So what are the requirements for communication to be effective communication under the ADA? The ADA, you actually, actually uh, does a very good job of defining what is effective communication, setting out requirements. The first one is it must be accessible, which means it must provide both communicative and expressive communication. The person must be able to express themselves to the place of public accommodation or to the medical office, and they must be able to receive the communication being provided to them. Mm. The second is it must be timely. And timeliness, this is going to be something which is going to vary based upon the undo. This is something where XCD, the readily achievable factor often comes in because if you go to a walk-in clinic and you need a sign language interpretation, 
interpretation, they may not be able to provide that immediately. It may take a while to bring in a interpreter, which is just the realities of the fact that most medical offices are not going to have a sign language interpreter sitting in the back room waiting for something to come in. And it also means a second factor of timeliness is it must be contemporaneous, which means the service must be providing the communication during the appointment in real time. Mm -hmm. And the third is it must be private. We, we do not require people with disabilities to go out there and have to shout out their uh, condition, the medical conditions to the world. And ultimately the goal is to make sure that people with disabilities are able to communicate with their medical providers the same way anyone without a disability is. That's an important thing to think about because, you know, you hear of these circumstances where, um, you know, somebody is relying on a family member to provide them mm -hmm. with interpretation during a medical appointment and that's that's just not something mm -hmm. that is expected of people who maybe don't have a disability mm -hmm. so i you know all of these factors are really important to keep in mm -hmm. mind when you're thinking about effective communication um i'm i'm wondering though does does the ada require the same accommodation in every circumstance no because uh the goal of the ada is not to the goal of the ada is to provide effective communication within the circumstance itself and okay. there's going to be several effect and there are several factors they look at and one is the ada also allow for the fact that people will communicate in different ways. Not everyone communicates the same way. And because of that, you can, you can really not have a, a general accommodation that's going to work. And because if you have someone who communicates in one way, then you have someone else, you have person, another person will communicate in a totally different way the one that would work for the first the the communication aids that would work for the first one would not work at all for the second one and even if you have people who do communicate in the same way it also will vary based upon the links complexity and nature of the conversation which is quoting mm -hmm. directly from the ada and its regulations mm -hmm. This kind of reminds me, I had, a, I had a case that I worked with at an individual who was deaf mm -hmm. and the facility he was living in said, oh, we've provided him effective communication uh, accommodations. Um, we have him write between the nurses. So they, he writes his answers. That's something that we do for everybody who's hard of hearing or deaf. Mm -hmm. And I started working with the individual and it turns out that he can't write. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we were able to work out getting him a communication board and things like that mm -hmm. because, you know, they were, they were making assumptions based on mm -hmm. people that they previously worked with with a similar disability and not recognizing that that didn't just transfer over to this other individual.
Right, that is actually a common issue you have with people who are deaf from birth because oftentimes people who are deaf from birth or a young age, they will be they, they will learn and be educated in American Sign Language. And American Sign Language with note writing is often not effective for someone who only communicates in American Sign Language because the sentence structure of American Sign Language is different than the sentence structure of English. So even in a written form, it may be difficult for a person to understand, and it can be very difficult for a person who only communicates in American Sign Language to understand notes written in English, and vice right. versa. So when we're talking about those ADA requirements, which of those factors is most important in determining what auxiliary aid or service will be required? Because as, as you remember with the ADA, including looking at costs and providing reasonable accommodations, the most important factor is always gonna be the links complexity and nature of the conversation. And in the real world, what that translates as is if you have a more complex conversation, which lasts longer and is very important, it's going to be, it's going to require a higher level of service and more expensive accommodations, such as providing in-person sign language interpretation, are going to be required in those circumstances because they're very important long conversations. Now, in a medical office com context, there are very few conversations that are not going to qualify as being long or, or at least complex and important because they, for example, medical billing insurance matters, that's actually important because that's whether you pay. Your diagnosis information, those are important because of those many medical office con about the only thing within the healthcare context which is not going to qualify as complex would be going to the going to a hospital gift shop or cafeteria and buying something. <laughs> but pretty much anything else in a hospital probably is actually going to qualify as requiring because it's going to be as requiring a high level of auxiliary aid and service because it's going to be requiring diagnosis care. So let's talk more about sign language interpreters because this mm -hmm. is sort of an interesting topic for me. Um, what requirements apply for an interpreter? Like what does an interpreter need to be to be um, effective and appropriate for the situation? The first requirement is the interpreter must be neutral. And that means they do not have a tie for either side because the goal of the interpreter is to go out to and accurately de depend upon what's happening and not provide a slant. The second is a sign language interpreter must be qualified. And the way you show qualification is by testing and licensing process. For example, in Virginia, they had, they recognize state level testing as well as national level testing to be on the Virginia Department for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing's uh, registry of the interpreters. And one of those, and if you actually look at that list, you can see that there's several interpreters which are listed for having different qualifications. For example, one might list that they're qualified for medical appointments, one might list they're qualified for courtroom appointments, and Again, the longer, more complex interactions, for example, interactions in the medical office, that's going to require a higher level of interpreter than some other conversation. Mm -hmm. Then, and this is, 
another important fact is a sign language interpreter must speak the right form of sign language. And they must be able to understand and communicate in that form. Because, well, oftentimes people speak of American Sign Language. The fact that it's American Sign Language should tell you that that's not the only form of sign language out there. And in fact, it's not the only form of sign language used in the United States because in uh, around the 1960s and 1970s, there was a movement for something called sign exact English, where people would speak in sign language based more on English. So if you have somebody who communicates, who learned sign exact English, an American sign language interpreter would not work for them. And if you have someone who learned sign language in a different country, Again, the American Sign Language interpreter may not work for them. And of course, the communication has to be accurate. We, we all know the jokes where you go out there and you have the translator going out there and getting everything wrong. You know, mm. we, we, we all probably played the telephone game when we were children. So that's, and imagine that happening in a doctor's office and you can see why accuracy is so important. And finally, the interpreter must be able to communicate both, both uh, receptively and expressively. So the interpreter must be able to understand both languages. You cannot have an interpreter who cannot, uh, and that, that of course means the interpreter has to be able to hear what's spoken in English and then translate it into the sign language. Right. Now, I, I was thinking about your, your the first qualification you talked about neutral because I think mm -hmm. like we've all we've all dealt with folks that who are deaf or hard of hearing, mm -hmm. who are you know have a family member who speaks mm -hmm. with who who helps them and you know helps them get about the world, mm -hmm. but that's not a neutral party. Right. So you know that that doesn't meet the qual and that person might not meet any of the rest of these qualifications either. But, you know, again, that neutrality is something mm -hmm. that like, if you, if uh, a medical office is just like, Oh, well, like just bring your, your child, bring your mm -hmm. husband, they'll be your interpreter. That doesn't meet those guidelines. Right. And in fact, the ADA, in fact, specifically prohibits a family member from being used for interpreting because a is because they are not neutral and you can certainly imagine a case where if you have the communication with the doctor and they give really bad news for example telling a person you have cancer and if it's your it's your uh, it's your uh, parent you're translating for or it's your uh, child or it's your uh, spouse you're going to probably not translate that news very accurately because you're going to be way too emotional if you find out that say your mother has cancer you're not going to probably do a very good job of translating. And of course, there's no way of knowing without any sort of testing, there's no way of knowing whether that person is actually qualified to actually provide the interpretation yeah. and not, and not all interpreters are actually going to be eligible to interpret for a really complex conversation, such as a medical office. That's a really good example. Um, so, so through this conversation, I've been thinking about, uh, you know, I, I've definitely worked with people who have some kind of interpreter relay service who I've worked with on the phone. So I'm wondering, does a sign language interpreter have to be there in person and on site to, to work for the situation? 
No, it because the ADA specifically allows a form of interpretation as a possible accommodation and which is video remote interpretation. And with video remote interpretation, what you do is you communicate in real time and you have to have a really good strong broadband internet connection in order to do this, but you, then you communicate on video where a person, where the interpreter can be hundreds of miles away from the appointment. And this has been very effective. This can be very effective, for example, at allowing communication in walking clinics if you have the proper technology. Now, video, but there has to be, but in order to use video remote interpretation, there has to be several standards. One is you have to have a clear picture and audio with a live real-time connection. And that can be very difficult, especially for medical offices located in large medical office buildings, which may not necessarily be able to have good internet connections inside. And that, especially with, especially if they have masonry construction on the outside or a built of reinforced concrete. And it must also provide for effective communication. Now, many providers want to use VRI because it's it's the uh, it's generally cheaper than bringing an in-person interpreter because you're only paying for the actual time connected, and you don't have to pay for the travel time for the interpreter. But it is a case where it can be very difficult to assure those conditions on that because it it can be very difficult to go out there and have that kind of real-time live video connection. And some people with disabilities also do not communicate effectively over video. This is something that, at least in my experience, it tends to be the older individuals who don't really like VRI. Now, if they don't like VRI, that the ADA says, you know, too bad. But if if they actually cannot use it because they cannot figure out how to use how, how to communicate effectively over video, then that could actually be a problem. And of course it can, but using the problem with VRI is the staff does not understand how to use it properly and you just cannot get to good connection. Mm-hmm. Because we, we've in fact heard several connections where uh, we've in fact heard several situations, I know I have where uh, the VRI has not worked within the medical office context and especially if in hospital context, most hospital buildings, VRI is probably not going to work in because of the nature of the construction. Okay, Zach. Um, so we, we've talked a little bit about um, why it can be a bad idea to use uh, family members as interpreters or like a means of effective communication. But is there any circumstance in which a family member would be allowed or it would be okay for them to interpret at a medical appointment? There would be, there there were probably two factors where that would be allowed. The -hmm. first situation is if the person with a disability requests that they want their family member to interpret for them. And sometimes people would do that. They say, you know, they might say, I want my wife to interpret for me, which during the medical appointment because they may well, well feel that they're, they're already signing consent for that person to appear, or it might be a person they trust. And 
the second situation would be pretty rare, but it would be allowed to use a family member to interpret in a very urgent emergency situation where that is the only way. But that would be primarily, that'd be a fairly rare situation that would primarily show up in the emergency room. And in those cases, they would still have to get a, they would still have to get a more effective way as soon as possible. Right. Well, kind of along those lines, what if a medical office has a staff member who knows sign language? Would, does the staff member being utilized as an interpreter, does that meet the ADA requirements? No, it would not meet the requirements to use as, as the interpreter. However, the rule is different if the medical professional can directly communicate with the individual. Because generally, if you have direct communication, it is permitted. For example, if you have a nurse who communicates using sign language, she can communicate directly with the patient to, uh, to take turns. But that nurse who communicates using American Sign Language would not be able to communicate, would not be able to interpret for the doctor mm. because it would violate the principle for neutrality. And there are some situations where it would also be, would probably actually be required to have an interpretation. For example, if you're going to have a comprehensive speech language evaluation, the evaluator has to speak, has to communicate using the language you communicate in. Otherwise, you cannot get a meaningful speech language evaluation. Another situation would be competency evaluations. For example, if a person was facing a guardianship hearing, again, the or a competency to stand trial in a criminal law context, again, the evaluator should be able to communicate in that person's language in order to get the most accurate picture of their capabilities. And in those cases, the ADA probably actually requires the evaluator to use the interpreter. And it's also important to note that because of the neutrality requirement, a interpreter must, must not be an employee of the medical provider, although there is one exception, and that is if the medical provider empl directly employs a qualified interpreter, which is something that you might see in some large hospitals. And uh, it, as, as I understand, so, some large hospitals will employ multiple interpreters, even if they have sufficient need. And in those cases, because the interpreter is a qualified interpreter, they are allowed to interpret even though, because in those cases, they're still being neutral, even though the hospital directly employs them. Because mm -hmm. if you disqualified people based upon pay, you would disqualify any interpreter because the place of public accommodation is always required to pay for the interpreter. So say I need, um, some service or aid for effective communication, what's the best time to request that? The best time to request it would be as soon as possible. If you are making a medical appointment, you should include in your, your request for accommodation saying what your preferred accommodation was immediately as soon as you're making the appointment. If you go to a walking clinic or a hospital, 
as soon as you arrive, you should notify them that you're a person with a disability who needs a combination, and again, give your preferred accommodation. Now, you may not necessarily get your preferred accommodation, but it's so important to establish that. And you should make those requests in writing to make, and because that would establish a record. It's always good to establish a record, but you're a lawyer, Zach, so I'm, mm -hmm. I don't expect anything less from you. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but why it's important, I imagine you'll explain, because, you know, I know that there are folks who, you know, are making these medical appointments mm -hmm. or, you know, trying to get these medical services and are having some difficulties getting the auxiliary aids and services that they need to effectively communicate in a medical office. So what can those people do? Well, the, the, there are a couple of options they could do. One option is they can actually contact us at the, at the Disability Law Center of Virginia to uh, discuss their, their individual circumstance and provide them some. And then, because every case is going to be different, of course, so you, you really need to go out there and look at a specific area. And people also, if they believe that their rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act are being violated. They can also file a complaint directly with the United States Department of Justice at ADA.gov, which also has a lot of good information on effective communication because they, ha they have a fantastic guide on effective communication, which, uh, which I, when I communicate with medical offices, I always include a copy of it because I, I think it's very useful information for people to and they also you can also find the text of the ADA as well as the text of the ADA regulations and with the regulations you can actually click directly on the effective communications portions and get to the auxiliary aids and services and have the actual regulations at your fingertips but it really is and it really is a case where a lot of times when people run into problems, at least based on my experience, it's that the medical offices do not understand the law or they don't, or they, the medical offices don't really understand how important effective communication is. And they sit, think, well, this person writes well, I can just communicate with them in writing. But then what they don't realize is that they're actually, if something could be missing because that's not real-time communication, it's delayed, and of course it takes longer. I know uh, what one, one case I had, they said that an appointment which took an hour with writing notes, when they went out to an exit communicated with a sound language interpreter, it took, 40, it, it took 15 minutes, because there wasn't like the miscommunication, and everyone understood, and, and of course, it's also very important because I think most medical offices and doctors do want to do the right thing. So I've always found it very effective to go out there and mention, to really discuss how it really promotes effective care. Mm -hmm. And while, while I'm here, I should go out there and note something that I felt to include earlier. That It's also important to note that this also applies if you're a companion with a person with a disability. For example, if you're mm -hmm. going to a appointment, if you communicate using sign language and you're a parent of a child, the doctor would still be required to go out there and communicate and provide the 
the communication services for the individual. Yeah. That, yeah, I wouldn't have even thought to ask about that. So that's a that's a really mm -hmm. good point. Thank you so much, yeah. Zach. And thank you for coming and talking to us and giving us these mm -hmm. guidelines for effective communication in medical settings. I feel like you've just blown my world right open. We super and, appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, having me. And instead of a DLCV highlight, Today, we're going to talk about how you can get involved. Hi, everyone. My name is Mary Grace Whitten, and I am a summer law, summer law intern at DLCB. I wanted to quickly share some information about our public accommodation survey that is now available on our website. Um, since we are a small office that serves the entire state, it's sometimes difficult for us to be everywhere and catch all of um, things that don't comply with ADA. So we created a survey to help us target specific areas of concern. Um, and it's a great way to let us know if like your local grocery store, the gas station down your street or your street corner does not meet the ADA accessibility guidelines. And we aren't looking for anyone to actually go and measure, um, you know, the street or anything like that, because we're going to do that. But we do want to raise awareness and teach people what to look for. So on our Twitter account, we're actually going to start posting ADA and Virginia state laws and include photos that will help people better understand what to look for. And this is a great way that you can be an advocate for accessibility if you don't know where to start. Uh, when walking up to a building or like walking down the street, things to look for include like if there's an access aisle next to accessible parking spaces, if there's curb cuts from the road to the sidewalk, uh, is there accessible parking located near the entrance to the building, is there an accessible path to the entrance, and are there barriers in that path, stuff like that. Um, and on Twitter, we'll be including little tidbits about the laws and photos to either show what works or what doesn't. Um, and so you can start really seeing that in real life and then applying it to your own community. So once we receive the, uh, once we receive the surveys, we're gonna follow up and we'll either contact the individual who submitted the survey or we'll complete a full on-site survey of the location ourselves. Um, and on our end, the survey forms have us look at things like the size of the accessible parking spaces, the width of the ramps, the weight of the door, the carpet rug or thickness, and the height of the bathroom sink. So we really, we go in and um, we'll look at a lot of different stuff, um, but we just need to be aware of these violations in different parts of the state. And so that's where filling out the survey at www.dlcv.org backslash accessibility hyphen and, uh, and hyphen accommodation. Um, will really help us get to those violations. So thank you so much for having me. Um, and I look forward to maybe speaking to everyone soon again. Okay, well, thank you again, Zach, for coming in and giving us the rundown on effective communication in medical settings. It was super informative. We really appreciate uh, everything we learned. I know I learned a lot. I always learn a lot on these episodes. I think it's just really obvious that there are so many things that DLCV does, and there's no way to be an expert on every single one, which is why we have a whole bunch of experts. Oh, and I am so grateful for them. And again, grateful. Thank you so much, Zach. Hopefully we will have him back again soon. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at DisabilityLawVA, and you can share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Virginia Ferris. And I'm Ren Fazuski. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now. 